Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13, which is all of Isaiah 55. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. Lord, we do thank you for the ways in which you communicate to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying. Lord, give us minds to think and to wonder. And Lord, give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive your word into our hearts and lives today. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Turning then to our New Testament reading from First Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 12. As Peter is writing uh, to who he calls God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. He says, starting in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of, these, of the things that have now been told, told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is um, a time of year that I both love and hate. This is the time of year in El Dorado when the butterflies come through and we have the monarch migration, and I love it. Um, In fact, the alley behind our house is one of the places where they all gather. And so if, uh, if you want to go down there, just, you know, don't drive down real fast and scare them all away. <laughs> go down, have a look. It's amazing. It is an absolute wonderland when you walk through uh, so many butterflies that you can hear the flapping of the wings of a butterfly <laughs> or all of them added together. It's amazing. I love this time of year. On the other hand, uh, this time of year, every four years, It's difficult. <laughs> it's election season. And I don't, maybe you've heard, there's an election coming up. Of course you've heard that. And not only have you heard that there's an election coming up, but you have heard the lie, whether it has been explicitly stated or just implied over and over again, that there is nothing more important about you than who you vote for. Have you heard that? either somebody stating it explicitly or whether they've just implied it, there is nothing more important about you than who you vote for in this election? I can tell you that is not true. And I will tell you one of the ways that I know it's not true is that I have been (laughs) personally to a lot of funerals in my time. Many I've officiated, others I have attended. have not yet had my own, but that day will come. And let me tell you, There have been a lot of elections. There have been, in my lifetime, a lot of most important elections of my lifetime. (laughs) And at every funeral I have been to, you know what I have not heard? Voting records. (laughs) Why would you not hear voting records if this is the most important thing? Well, you would if it were the most important thing. But it's not. 
Now, I'm not saying that voting is not important. Of course, in this country, it is one of the great privileges and great responsibilities that we have as citizens. It's not to be taken lightly. Of course, it's to be taken seriously. But let's not mistake it. (laughs) That's the most important thing. So what are the things that get talked about at funerals? When all of the superficial things fade away, and we deal in the things of substance and what truly matters. What are the things that get talked about? I would say some of the main things that get talked about are what kind of a person this was and whether or not they believe in Jesus. Now you can think back to funerals you have attended. And you can probably confirm that. What kind of a person this was and whether or not they believe in Jesus. Well, it's that second question that we're actually going to be looking at this morning of whether or not someone believes in Jesus. And we're looking specifically at the instance of one of the disciples and whether or not this disciple would believe in Jesus. And at first glance, it seems like, well, that seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, he believes in Jesus. That's why he's a disciple. Well, not so simple. This is the disciple Thomas, the one that we know as Doubting Thomas, even though this is the only uh, instance that we're told about where he expresses uh, doubt. He does pop up a few other times uh, throughout Scripture. Once before Jesus goes to to Bethany where Lazarus has died and Jesus is going to go and raise him from the dead, Thomas is the one who's like, well, let's go with him. Yeah, he's probably going to get killed and we'll just go and get killed too. Like that's, that is Thomas's attitude. He's all in at that point. Later in John 14, when Jesus says, I'm going away, and, and he's like, how can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. And that's when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But again, you see Thomas is somebody who's generally on board. He's generally in. He just wants more information. Well, then we get to this. This is um, the, we're going to be looking at a week after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And it starts in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. And believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, where does this begin? This begins exactly where none of us want to be, 
and that is on the outside looking in. Where we don't want to be is to have all of our friends have some experience that we don't have, and we missed out, and then they're telling us about just how great it is, and we missed it. You had that experience? That's no fun at all. That's where Thomas starts. <laughs> That's, he was there for Jesus's arrest. He knows of the crucifixion. He knows Jesus died. But he wasn't there for the resurrection. He wasn't there that first Sunday when all the disciples had gathered together, in, except for him, in, uh, in a room with the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus shows up in their midst and says, Peace be with you. He wasn't there. He missed it. Now, how does that feel? I don't know. (laughs) But we've had similar experiences. When you miss something, and then he goes to them later. Hey, guys, what's going on? Oh, not much. You just missed the most important thing in the history of the world ever. Oh, great. Great. (laughs) Well, did you record it? No. (laughs) No, so they just have to, he has to go on their word. And what they are saying is, we saw Jesus alive and here with us. And here are the things he did, here are the things he said, here's how he looked. And how does Thomas respond to this? Hallelujah, praise God. I knew this was going to happen. I knew it. I called it. Remember back in the day when I said? No. How does he respond? That's not possible. That's not possible. He died. And that's the end. And I would say that at this point, what Thomas is expressing is actually reasonable doubt based on evidence. What is the evidence that Thomas has to this point in his life? He's seen a lot of people die. And he knows that after someone dies... That's it. Now, sure, he's seen Jesus raise some people to life again, but that's definitely an outlier. And if Jesus himself is dead, then who's going to be the one raising somebody? So no, not possible. It's not how things work. On the other hand, he's got his closest friends all telling him the same thing. All giving him the step-by-step, blow-by-blow, this is how it happened. And he doesn't believe. And so he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. You might expect that he would say something along the lines of, I can't believe it. But he doesn't say, I can't believe it. It's more, I refuse to believe it. The next week. The next week. What a long week for Thomas. What a long week for for the other disciples who are like, no, seriously, Thomas. (laughs) This has happened. It changes everything. And Thomas like, oh, good grief, guys. Let it go. (laughs) 
I already told you, I'm not, I'm not buying it. What a long week. A week later, they're all together in the house again. This time Thomas is with them. Doors are still locked, presumably still afraid. And then Jesus comes again, stands among them and says, peace be with you. Does this sound familiar? I hope so. That's exactly what happened a week earlier when everyone was there except Thomas. And it happens again. And this time, Thomas gets to see it. And what's amazing is what Jesus says to Thomas. He says the same thing in general to everyone, peace be with you. But then he says to Thomas specifically, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Why does he say this to Thomas? Well, look back at what Thomas had said. It's almost word for word. Thomas says, this is what I need to see if I'm going to believe. And Jesus comes right to him and says, then this is what I'm giving you. If what it's going to take for you to believe is to put your finger into my hand, if it's to put your hand into my side, then here you go. He comes specifically and personally to Thomas and gives him exactly what he needs. He meets him right where he is. It's amazing. But we see Jesus doing this all the time, don't we? Meeting people right where they are. The way that he talks to Nicodemus is not the same way that he talks to the woman at the well. He meets them where they are. He talks to them in ways that they understand. And for Thomas, he talks to Thomas. Providing him exactly what he needs. Now, we said before that Thomas had reasonable doubt based on evidence. Well, now he's got new evidence. What's the response? I would say that what he responds with is reasonable belief based on evidence. He now has new evidence, and so he has new belief. There is actually an old story, certainly not true, um, about a man who decides that he is dead. He is fully convinced in his own mind that he is, in fact, dead. And his family and his friends, they keep trying to convince him, no, you're not dead, you're actually still alive. Nope, nope, I'm dead. And they get really frustrated with this, they're not sure what to do, so finally they take him to the doctor, like, doctor, is there any way you can convince him that he is, in fact, alive? And so the doctor thinks about it and goes, well, okay, okay, we got it. And so he takes him through textbooks and examples and shows him that dead men do not bleed. And so he finally gets him up, would you agree with this? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. He says, okay, uh, let me see your finger. And then he holds out his finger, and he pokes him with a needle, and he bleeds. And the guy looks at it, and he goes, well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. (laughs) Now, hang on a second. (laughs) That is not reasonable belief based on evidence. That is a hard-hearted stubbornness to make the best sense of the evidence. And we all know what that's like, don't we? Um, 
you've probably had conversations with someone where you say, no, don't you see that? (laughs) And it doesn't matter. It's one thing to be, it's really frustrating when you're on the, um, on that end where you're trying to explain to someone and they just refuse to believe. In spite of all the evidence, they just refuse. And there's this uh, kind of spiritual folding of the arms and a hardening of the heart, as the Bible puts it. So frustrating. On the other hand, we've all been that person too. <laughs> we all have things that we are uh, holding to not because of the evidence, but just because we want to hold to those. And new evidence comes in, and we find some way to try to make it fit with what we already believed beforehand. Now, this is um, the whole dead men do bleed thing. Thankfully, Thomas is not hard-hearted in this moment. Jesus comes and shows him evidence that he needs for belief, and his response is belief. My Lord and my God, he responds. What has happened with Jesus? He gets it. That Jesus is who he had said he was all along. That Jesus, having been raised from the dead in reality and in fact, not just by the report of the disciples, but standing there in front of Thomas, he says, I'm in. I am all in. My Lord and my God. And then, verse 29, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why say this? Well, there's only one generation of disciples that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Only one generation. But Jesus knew there were going to be more generations. In fact, We know there have been a lot of generations since then. But only that first generation were the eyewitnesses. And so this is the reminder that Jesus gives to the original eyewitnesses. Yes, you have seen. And you have believed because you have seen. But there will be more to come. And what they will see is your life. What they will see is your life. Testimony, your eyewitness testimony. And there will be people who believe. This is what we read in First Peter when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus is reminding uh, his disciples and reminding us that eyewitness testimony is a form of evidence that we can accept or reject. And then John tells us this 
is not just about Thomas. It's about us. It's about everyone who reads this book. John says the reason that he wrote this book is so that we would believe. He even tells us he didn't write down all the things that Jesus did, but he wrote down the things that we would need to see. Here's how he puts it. Verses 30 and 31. John, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what it's about. This is the reason that John wrote this book. Now you have to imagine, John, having spent time with Jesus for three years, John, having spent time um, closely with Jesus, when Jesus is with the twelve, John's one of them. When Jesus takes just uh, three of them off, John is one of them. He went around and uh, saw the things that Jesus did. He heard the things that Jesus said. He was in the upper room the night before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus washed John's feet. John was one of the first to the empty tomb and one of the first to see him raised to life again. As the years go on, John has known this change in his life that all goes back to Jesus and who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is, as he puts it in the first chapter, the word made flesh. And it's changed his life. And he's seen it change the lives of a lot of people in his time. John lived to be pretty old. However, John knows he's not going to be around forever either. That there will be generations that come after him. And so he writes it down. He passes on his eyewitness testimony because of the importance of people knowing this message. Of people knowing about Jesus, who he is, and what that means for us. And so John writes this book. Um, we're actually reading this book right now for our Wednesday night Bible studies, and we'll be discussing the second half of it this Wednesday. But whether you've been reading along with us or not, I would encourage you uh, to go back and read the whole of John in one sitting. I told you about this before. This was a challenge that was given to me as, when I was a senior in high school. It changed my life. Read the whole of John in one sitting. It doesn't take that long. If you have ever uh, sat down to watch a movie or a football game, this doesn't even take that long. And it is much more important. And what John is saying here is, yeah, he's, he's recorded these things that Jesus has done so that we would believe, but not just so that we believe something in general, but believe specifically that Jesus is the Messiah. 
that as we look back at the whole of the Old Testament and we see the continual promise of the Messiah, of the brokenness of our world and how God is going to send someone who is going to be the one to make it right again, to fix all of the brokenness, to restore it, to redeem it. And John says, that's Jesus. And I want you to see that too, that it's Jesus. It didn't look like what everybody thought it was going to look like, but it looks exactly how it needed to be. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And not just that you would believe these things, but that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. If you go all the way back to John chapter 1, all of these themes that he's talking about here, he introduces. If you're going to read John in one sitting, which I hope you do, maybe start with a pencil in hand. And even if it's in chapter 1, underline, circle, whatever you want to do, the times where John brings up life, Belief, Messiah or Christ, same word, two different languages. And you'll see this is what he has been setting out to tell us about, about Jesus. This is what is so, was so mind-blowing for John and life-changing for him. And he says, but it's not just for me. This is for the whole world. This is for everybody. This is good news. I want you to know this same life. And so you need to know about Jesus. You need to know who he is, how he operates, why he came, what he's about. That you may have life in his name. Now, hopefully you get the point. This is important. It is important for John. It is important for us. But it's not just important for us. There were a lot of other things I'm sure John could have written about in his day. But he writes about this. Because of all the things he could have written about, he believed this is the most important thing. As we walk through uh, this season, there are a lot of things we can talk about. There are a lot of things we can tell people about. I hope, though, that in all of it, we remember what is most important. that we understand that the good news is not just good news for us. This is good news for the world. And our prayer would be that through our testimony of who Jesus is, that the whole world would come to believe and have life in his name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Lord, we do thank you for the ways that you speak our language. God, that you meet us where we are. You didn't have to do that. But God, you do it because you love us. Lord, I pray that 
that you would speak clearly to everyone that we would have the, um, the information that we need that would meet our own threshold of belief. But Lord, beyond that, I pray that you would give us hearts that are soft and would fairly evaluate the evidence. God, that we wouldn't refuse what is true just because we don't want it to be true. Lord, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge who Jesus really is as king over your whole creation and even our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help each person to understand this for the good news that it is even even as it bumps up against some of our own desires that are just leading to death. Lord, help us to put those things to death that we might know the life that is in Jesus. Lord, help us to learn, as Tim Keller says, to doubt our doubts. That we would be able to stop doubting and believe. And Lord, help us to communicate this, this message to a world that needs to hear it. Help us to communicate it in ways that are faithful to who you are and that meets people where they are. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.